relapse. This isn't a condition that you just need to live with or that you need to give up activities or footwear that you enjoy wearing. Hopefully those listening in feel empowered that there are ways that their pain can actually be addressed. What is going on, everyone? Emily Abadi here. You are listening to episode 276 of Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride towards your own big potential. And of course have some fun along the way. For today's convo, I am chatting with Dr. Adam 1040 of Mass General Brigham Sports Medicine. Say that five times fast. Dr. 1040 is also an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Harvard Medical School. And we are talking about something super sexy today, and that is feet, specifically plantar fasciitis. Now, if you have been following along with my personal journey over the last year, I have been dealing with and can confidently say at this point, I beat plantar fasciitis. Now, for those of you that are not aware of what plantar fasciitis is, is an inflammation of the plantar fascia on the foot. And Dr. 1040 really dives into what it is today, what causes it, and so many other things. But like I said, I really dealt with a bad case last year. And in dealing with bad plantar fasciitis, I experienced a ton of discomfort Notably in the mornings, throughout my day, I had to change the way that I was active, how I worked out, adjust the way that I like to move, specifically pertaining to running. I invested tons of money in physical therapy and working with podiatrists, all different treatment options, which I speak about today with Dr. 1040. And I also realized just how many people are truly struggling with this. It is so frustrating to get up in the morning, put your feet on the ground. And the first thing that you experience is pain. It's something that no one should have to deal with. And that is why I brought this expert in. I wanted to finally have an in-depth conversation that I could point people to when they message me about struggling with this issue. And that's what we're doing here. We're talking all about it. So do me a favor. Maybe you don't have plantar fasciitis, but someone you know is struggling with it. That's who this episode is for. Share it with a friend. Send it to someone that you care about their health and well-being. We all deserve to live a pain-free life. You do not have to accept living with pain. That is something that we really get into today, as well as so many other things. How do doctors diagnose plantar fasciitis? How is it treated? What are the home remedies? And so much more. Make sure you're following along over on social at Hurdle podcast. I am over at Emily Abadi. And with that, let's get to it. Let's get to hurdling. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Adam 1040 of Mass General Brigham Sports Medicine. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Uh, Thanks for having me on your show. Uh, Thanks for making the time. You know, there has been a thirst for knowledge when it comes to one of the sexiest topics that we can talk about, and that is plantar fasciitis. Now, like I said, you work in sports medicine at Mass General Brigham. Tell me a little bit about how you got into this area of expertise. We, we commonly see a, a number of overuse injuries, and, and my focus is on uh, the management of acute and overuse injuries, particularly in runners. But when you see some of these conditions that affect runners, you can oftentimes extrapolate how they would affect other uh, athletes that participate in land-based sports or even individuals that are physically active in, in other methods. So plantar fasciitis represents a a very common overuse injury. We commonly think of it as as heel pain, but the more we learn about it, there's a a number of advances in our understanding for effective ways to rehabilitate this injury and even some targeted interventions that I commonly do in practice. Right. And you specialize traditionally in non-surgical treatment. Is that correct? That's correct. And one of the things that is oftentimes a challenge, and I think it's it's wonderful to 
wonderful to be on your show is understanding that there are many different avenues to receiving care for musculoskeletal injuries. So oftentimes individuals are looking for uh, a foot and ankle surgeon or someone in, in orthopedics. And oftentimes that will, will lead to discussions on whether this is an injury that requires surgery. The good news is, uh, for all those listening in, plantar fasciitis is a treatable condition. It's an overuse injury, uh, but it very rarely requires surgery. Yeah. Now, I think that first and foremost, let's just lay the foundation that although it is an overuse injury, and we did talk about you specializing working with runners, anyone can develop plantar fasciitis. It's not just limited to someone that identifies as a runner. When we use the term overuse injury, it beckons the question, why do some individuals develop this versus others, considering maybe they may move the same amount? I think it's a great question. And I oftentimes will will joke with patients when I get that question, because we we may be doing the exact same amount of activity we've historically done, but for a number of different factors, probably a number that we have not been able to identify, uh, individuals will develop this injury. So overuse really refers to excessive demand to a tissue in which the tissue is not able to repair itself. So we've moved away from, you know, using the term itis for everything like tendonitis, fasciitis. Um, I'll commonly use that term when I'm talking to my patients because I want to use terms that are familiar. But now that if we start to think of this as an overuse injury, which may not necessarily be purely driven by inflammation, we understand why some of our traditional strategies around icing or taking over-the-counter anti-inflammatory medications don't successfully treat this condition. First, before we get into the treatment for this, let's talk about what some of the signature signs might be that you are indeed dealing with plantar fasciitis. Yeah. So with plantar fasciitis, the most common issue that individuals will have is is pain in their heel. And that'll oftentimes be when you first wake, those first couple of steps can be very painful. There oftentimes is something called a warm-up phenomenon, which means that as the tissue gets more blood flow from demand, it will feel a little better, but we'll have those transition times, uh, for example, uh, after sitting for a while where the first steps will be very painful. The pain is usually localized to, to to the plantar heel, so right under the sole of the foot. But, but this injury can involve a, a larger span of the foot because the plantar fascia, as much as it's, it's very annoying and most of us take it for granted until we have an injury involving the plantar fascia, it, it, it serves a number of critical roles. It actually starts at the, the base of the heel. It has three bands and then five slips that will actually go to each of, each of the toes. So this, this spans almost the entire length of the, the bottom of the foot. So when it's, when it's injured, it's very difficult to avoid over, overloading that tissue. And as a result, a lot of individuals will have pain and they'll try a number of things to support their foot to try to take the pain away. Right. Understandable. And I can speak as someone who really dealt with a gnarly case of this last year. I feel like there are almost like two different places you can be in. It's like I might feel plantar fasciitis every so often, but it's not something that is truly debilitating for you versus being in a place where plantar fasciitis really is, as you spoke about, that early morning starts from the moment you wake up, might feel a little bit better throughout the day, but it's there every single day. For those that are in the first camp, the area where it only presents every so often, I would imagine that they want to do everything they can so they don't end up in the second camp. Where do they begin? So so this injury does sometimes start with with pain just during activity. And and it's actually been described as one of the more common running-related injuries. So you'll have individuals that feel okay most of the day, and it's only when they run or they do activities which involve a lot of hopping where their plantar fascia hurts. And I think when when you're in that stage, really the goal is to figure out what is it about the demands on on the feet that are causing that pain. So 
this is where physical therapy can be very helpful, uh, recognizing that the plantar fascia spans the length of the foot, but there's actually four layers of muscles that make up the arch of the foot as well. So if this, if this fascia is under chronic stress from, from activities, perhaps there's a role for actually strengthening the muscles in the feet to take the stress off of the plantar fascia. And you're right, it, it can sometimes progress to becoming more of a daily nuisance whenever you, you take a step, you feel it. So what we're really trying to do is treat this injury as early as possible. And there are some studies suggesting that, you know, the first year can be, um, can be a really good window to have better outcomes. Although I've taken care of individuals with this condition that have had this pain for years and we're ultimately able to, to get them better and, and not having pain. So I also don't, don't want people to become discouraged if they've had this condition for a long time or if it's affecting them at all times. Uh, I think there's, there's still a lot that can be done to, to help uh, address this injury. And, and again, it, it's oftentimes not necessarily a surgical solution, but it does require a number of different uh, considerations. Yeah, I'm like sitting here nodding my head because there are many different things, many different ailments that can be quite the hassle on the body. But when standing alone is the thing that brings you pain from the moment you wake up, it really does get to be truly exhausting. Now, I know personally a big cause for my plantar fasciitis was a lot of calf tightness. So let's segue here into talking about some of the different root causes aside from, as we talked about, an overuse injury. What are other things that can cause plantar fasciitis? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So it, it may not necessarily be just from overload. Um, again, the, the risk factors that have really been you know, clearly demonstrated in the literature, there are very few. There's there's concerns that perhaps you know being overweight, um, age, uh, certain conditions like diabetes might might predispose to development of plantar fasciitis. But again, that's not to say that that's that's predestined because you have arguably a number of runners that are normal body weight who will also develop the condition. And I also don't think it's it's the most helpful for for individuals to hear those risk factors and assume that they're going to receive uh, you know suboptimal care just because of uh, medical comorbidities. So so those tend to be some of the factors we'll look at though is is if someone has been gaining weight that that may be part of the strategy is thinking about what is that individual's healthy weight to get back to. Uh, if, if it's a, a change in activity or training, uh, it's recognizing that any, any change in uh, activity can sometimes uh, acutely overload the tissue. And then there's a number of different aspects of footwear that we have to think about as well. And, you know, women will wear shoes that are, you know, have a high heel. The, the way that may contribute to development of plantar fasciitis or some of the other foot and ankle injuries is that the use of a, of a lift, uh, a heel, will actually take some of the, the stress, uh, the stretch off of the tissue so that going from having a lot of heel support to having no heel support, which is what we typically have in, in most athletic footwear, that, that acute change m- might be very challenging for the feet. And again, I, I think it's important to understand the goals of the individual, and I certainly have no no qualms about individuals getting back into whatever footwear they want to wear, but it's just understanding what are the things that could potentially cause the foot to be painful in the first place, where we can uh, help help to address that early on and then build up the strength and the function so that individuals can get back into whatever they want to wear. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I would definitely go through phases, even when at the height of my plantar fasciitis, that going from something flat, like a sneaker into a heel almost felt good because it was just a different angle for my foot. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you, you intuitively were, were doing something that was temporarily taking the stress off of the foot. So by, by being in a heel, that can sometimes provide some relief. And that's why we oftentimes will, will see 
runners and other active individuals get a shoe that goes from having a zero drop, meaning that the the sole of the shoe has no difference between the heel to the forefoot, to getting something that has a little bit of a drop, because that will take a little bit of the stress off of the heel. Uh, but but to your point, when your calves feel tight, that can also be a sign that those tissues are are fatiguing. So another reason that people can be tight is not just that their bodies are built a certain way where their tissues are going to tighten up, but but that that tightening or that cramping can be a sign of fatigue, and and that's why physical therapy and rehabilitation exercises can be so effective for this condition. Definitely. And we'll get to those treatment options in just a second. I want to make sure that we reiterate here that uh, generally speaking, most sneakers will see something between an eight to 10 millimeter drop when it comes to running sneakers. When we talk about zero drop, the shoes that are flat from toe to heel, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're completely minimalist, completely flat on the ground. Those shoes could have what we often talk about to be a stack height, which is the uh, thickness, supposedly, of the foam that's under your foot. So a lot of different buzzwords when we talk about shoes and all the things that come with them, the bells and the whistles, it really is about finding what feels best for you and your foot, whether or not you're dealing with a condition like this. Yeah, I, I agree with that. You, the the stack height versus the the actual drop, that, that's a common question that individuals will bring up. You can have a shoe that has a lot of cushioning but that cushioning is evenly distributed under the foot, and that might be that might be a zero drop shoe, or you can have a traditional minimal shoe that has no cushioning under the foot, and is also a zero drop, and and both of those can put acute stress through the foot. Um, so that's that's a really important consideration when individuals think about what footwear they've changed when they develop this injury, so that they don't necessarily assume that their footwear didn't play a role. Right. I think it's really important to evaluate all the different things that might be happening. And that's why seeking out one-on-one advice with an expert like yourself, like a physical therapist, like another physician uh, is really important. Granted, yes, we are providing some insight in here. Let's consider this a uh, beginner primer. So then after listening this to this, you can take matters into your own hands. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I think the the important thing for the listeners to understand is this isn't a condition that you just need to live with or that you need to give up activities or footwear that you enjoy wearing. Uh, It's really, hopefully those listening in feel empowered that there are ways that their pain can actually be addressed. Right. It's not something that you just have to say, okay, this is my life now. Although admittedly, I've definitely gone through phases where I was like, well, (laughs) this is how it is now. So before we get to those treatment options that we were hinting at, why don't we just confirm how does a doctor diagnose plantar fasciitis? Yeah. So the diagnosis is primarily based on, on the history and the physical exam. So that history of where the pain is, what makes the pain worse, and the general sensation of, of a warm-up phenomenon, those tend to favor it being a, a soft tissue over you, uh, overload injury to the plantar fascia. And then on physical exam, it's usually identifying pain right where that uh, the plantar fascia attaches, but also looking at the foot to see if there's foot weakness. Um, one thing we'll commonly do and it's kind of an interesting exercise for viewers, is see what it's like to try to balance on one foot uh, and even balancing with your eyes closed. That can give you a sense for your ability to balance, which if your balance is off, of course, you're going to put more demands through the plantar fascia uh, to, to try to maintain stability. But then the other feature is if you're standing in front of a mirror and you can see the, um, the arch of the foot, when you go into a single leg squat, it's seeing whether that that uh, that arch deflects down, and that could be a sign that those four layers of muscles are not working as well to stabilize the foot, and might also represent uh, some features that could be targeted uh, through through physical therapy or other interventions. In terms of other diagnostic testing, we will sometimes get an X-ray. X-rays can be helpful for looking if there's presence of a bone spur. And the idea on 
why we look for bone spurs is we can sometimes target those uh, through different interventions. But the way I look at a bone spur is this is probably more a sign that the there's been chronic traction of the plantar fascia up against the bone and the body will oftentimes respond by trying to put down calcium deposits to try to reinforce the tissue or as part of the inflammatory process. Rarely we'll get MRIs and MRIs can be helpful if there's concern for an overuse injury to bones such as a stress fracture, uh, which, which again, the history will oftentimes give us a clue if that's a bigger concern. And with certain procedures that are done, uh, an MRI can be helpful, but, but oftentimes um, I'll have patients come to me and they're very concerned that they've had chronic pain and one of their goals is to get an MRI to understand the injury. Uh, the good news is that when we've looked at the, the evidence for how to diagnose plantar fasciitis, there's very limited role for, for MRI upfront. Um, and that oftentimes will add cost. So it's identifying ways to get our patients better and to use our resources uh, the most efficient as possible. Yeah. And if someone comes in and they think they might have plantar fasciitis, but it's actually something else, what would you say some of the something else things might be? Yeah. So at the local level, the the other features that overlap with plantar fasciitis would be Heel pain, which which could in fact be from an overuse injury, such as a stress reaction, stress fracture in the more advanced cases. There, there are other tendons that attach in the hind foot, uh, the peroneal tendons, the tibialis posterior. Uh, when the tibialis posterior is chronically irritated, oftentimes individuals will feel like their foot is flattening out though. Um, so that, that would be perhaps a clue. And then to your earlier point, we sometimes will find, as I like to joke with my patients, a close cousin of plantar fasciitis can actually be overload to the Achilles tendon. So people can develop an Achilles tendonitis, or as I like to refer to, an Achilles tendinopathy. And, and the reason to understand that relationship is to know that when, when someone's had a history of an Achilles injury, that's oftentimes there's increased demands that have been put through the foot and ankle, or perhaps weakness that contributed to that injury or other biomechanical factors. And some of those fibers that contribute to the Achilles tendon actually wrap around the heel. And so that tightness from the calf muscle can actually pull on the plantar fascia and, and make it more vulnerable to injury. Taking a break from today's episode to give some love to uh, something that's been in my personal wellness toolbox for years now. That is a G1. It's my all-in-one daily greens powder that's got 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced nutrients in one convenient daily serving. With the antioxidant equivalent of 12 servings of fruits and vegetables, as well as prebiotics, probiotics, adaptogens, and superfoods, it's hard for me to think about what my life was like before I was regularly incorporating AG1 into my routine. No matter what is going on with my diet, how often I'm eating out, especially with the holidays, this can get a little bit nutty this time of year. I know that beginning my day with AG1 is me doing something really good and investing in my own personal health and well-being. With AG1, I have notable benefits to my energy levels. I feel more motivated and it actually tastes good. And I don't say that like it tastes good for a greens powder. Like I look forward to drinking my AG1 every single day as a standalone product. Of course, AG1 has a deal for you. If you want to get in on the gang today, cannot recommend it enough. Head on over to drinkag1.com slash hurdle to get five free travel packs and a year's supply of vitamin D absolutely free. Again, head on over to drinkag1.com slash hurdle to get a year's supply of vitamin D as well as five free travel packs with your order. Also, got to give some love to my sponsor at Element. Element makes an electrolyte drink mix. It's got everything you need 
and nothing you don't. Tons of flavors ranging from watermelon and raspberry to citrus and my favorite right now, my go-to in the chilly winter months, their chocolate. I heat it up just like you would hot chocolate, water, a little bit of warm milk and top it with some coconut whipped cream. Oh my goodness, to know that I'm doing something good for my body that tastes this good feels like it should be, it feels like it should be illegal. Anyway, electrolytes, why do you need them? Well, I'm so happy you asked, let me tell you. Along with water, your body also needs sodium, calcium, magnesium, potassium, and chloride. These minerals, which are called electrolytes, regulate a staggering number of processes in the human body, like fluid balance, blood pressure, muscle contraction, heart function, and even anxiety. In other words, they are massively important for you to intake to feel good in your body. And that is why I cannot get enough element. Now, of course, they are offering you a sample pack so you can try all of the flavors with your purchase. Head on over to drinkelement.com. That's drinklmnt.com slash hurdle to get your free sample pack today. Again, drinklmnt.com slash hurdle to get your free sample pack with purchase. So now we have our basics. We know what characterizes plantar fasciitis. We know what might cause it. Now let's talk about how do we treat it? Where does someone even begin? Yeah. So oftentimes by the, by the time I see a patient, they've, they've tried a number of, of different strategies. So I, I certainly understand the tendency to try something over the counter, like an anti-inflammatory medication. And for those that don't have a history of, of kidney or stomach issues or cardiovascular, uh, you know, concerns, you know, a few weeks of an anti-inflammatory is oftentimes um, a reasonable thing to try uh, or something like Tylenol. Um, and, and what that will do is that will uh, provide some pain relief and oftentimes will allow individuals then to be able to do some of the rehabilitation exercises. Practically speaking, I actually don't prescribe anti-inflammatories because I find they have a very limited use in this condition. So what, what I consider to be the mainstay is to get the individual into physical therapy. So again, some of those earlier features, can you balance on one foot or how, how does someone look when they do a single leg squat can point to some of the weakness, especially if, if the condition is on one side and, and the individual is finding it a lot harder to do those tasks on that side. It represents something to target and, and ensure that people feel like there is actually something to work on and it's not just going through a process. In terms of other strategies early on, if someone has first morning step pain, so that pain getting out of bed, use of a night splint or uh, a Strasburg sock, uh, which is which tends to be a little better if you're if you're sleeping next to someone because it, it really hurts if you get kicked by a boot. Um, but a Strasburg sock is essentially a long stocking, which which puts a, a chronic stretch through the plantar fascia and might help with that first morning step pain. Uh, orthotics are another thing that individuals will try. I'm not a huge proponent for orthotics long-term unless someone really has an advanced structural foot deformity, uh, but something over the counter that provides a little bit of arch support will sometimes allow, um, allow for some pain relief. Now, if those strategies don't work, that's where we start to think about other interventions. So in terms of those strategies for treatment, one option that is commonly offered is a steroid injection. And the theory is that if steroid is put right next to the plantar fascia and there is a component of pain and inflammation, which is limiting the individual, by applying an anti-inflammatory, you might get pain relief. Now, while that's a reasonable strategy, there are a number of concerns around the use of steroid. One is that individuals that have diabetes or have other uh, issues affecting their their overall health, the, the steroid itself can actually cause a spike in blood sugar uh, or can affect people's mood. They sometimes have difficulty sleeping. But, but the other issues are what steroid can do structurally. So if steroid gets deposited into the the heel pad, it can actually cause a condition called fat atrophy, where the, the fat actually will, 
will will be uh, permanently injured, and then that that we don't have a really effective treatment for. The other is that the steroid itself, the more we learn about steroids, the less I, I like them. The main concern is that steroid actually suppresses the normal turnover of proteins in the, in the, uh, the plantar fascia. So people can actually tear their plantar fascia by having steroid deposited next to it. So if someone is going to have a steroid injection, we recommend the use of ultrasound guidance. And we didn't talk about ultrasound as an evaluation tool, but ultrasound has actually been shown to be quite effective under when we reviewed the literature for detecting this condition, because you can actually look for thickness of the plantar fascia and you can look for the presence of tearing. And what ultrasound guidance allows for is putting the steroid right next to the tissue, as opposed to putting the steroid directly into the plantar fascia or into a tendon where it could cause the, those tissues to get weaker. So that's something that we commonly will do at Mass General Brigham is use um, image guidance if we're going to provide uh, an injection like steroid. Now, looking at the, uh, the systematic reviews, though, the, the evidence that steroid will work, even though it's covered by insurance, it's been uh, suggested by Cochrane, which is a big review group, that it might have low evidence that it will help for one month of pain relief. So, so while it may be covered by insurance, and if if someone you know doesn't have the financial means to try some of these other strategies, and physical therapy isn't working, that is something that could be considered should be done under ultrasound guidance. Uh, but we have to recognize that may not be a good long-term strategy. So in terms of the other interventions, um, there's one other form of injection that we'll, we'll commonly consider, which is called platelet-rich plasma or PRP. And, and PRP is, is really you know, kind of a hot topic in sports medicine. Um, what, what we believe PRP can do is that by taking someone's own blood, uh, spinning it down and taking the platelet-rich layer, we're isolating some of the growth factors that might help the body to repair uh, our own tissue. So the upside with this is this is our body's own cells. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to reinitiate a healing response. Um, so very, very little to, to argue with that strategy. The main downsides with platelet-rich plasma are that uh, insurance won't pay for it. And we also need to recognize that if an athlete is is in season, or if you're you know you have an upcoming uh, running event, you may not want to take the the uh, traditional time off that's required after a PRP injection to effectively rehabilitate the tissue. And what does that time off classically look like? With PRP, it oftentimes will take a minimum of three months to really get back into full running. And, and so for a lot of individuals, that's not an acceptable amount of time. But I do think it's a reasonable strategy. And oftentimes we will get an MRI before offering PRP because we want to understand the extent of the injury and to make sure that the treatment is as targeted as possible. And oftentimes the individual will have more than just plantar fasciitis. There may be some involvement of other soft tissue, which then could also be targeted with the, the injection at one time. So the, the other injection too that has a little less evidence uh, would be something called prolotherapy. And, and prolotherapy is becoming um, very, uh, there's a lot more advertising for it. Uh, prolo stands for proliferation. So what prolotherapy is, is it's using a substance, oftentimes dextrose solution or sugar water, that can be put around a tissue and basically triggers a local inflammatory response. So oftentimes we hear, you know, fasciitis, and we assume that that is an inflammatory response. But getting back to our earlier definition, most of the time individuals do not have a primary inflammatory response causing their pain. What they have is they have tissue that's thickened, uh, where the body put down, uh, tried to repair, but that repair did not successfully happen. Um, so what prolotherapy does is it reinitiates that healing response. So the upside with prolotherapy is it can be used for an in-season athlete or someone who has a competition coming up. 
um, by changing the concentration of the dextrose solution. The downside with prolotherapy is similar to platelet-rich plasma. It does have an out-of-pocket cost. And oftentimes with prolotherapy, uh, individuals will get multiple injections to see the full effect as opposed to PRP, where we typically start with one followed by a structured rehabilitation program. Outside of injection-based treatments, the, the intervention that I commonly perform in my clinic is something called shockwave. Now, shockwave is, it has been around for a long time. It actually was first developed for the treatment of kidney stones. And it was observed that it actually had effects on other tissues. So not only could you dissolve a calcific stone or a mineral stone in the, in the kidneys, but you can actually use these, these sound waves or these pressure waves um, from, from this device to essentially reinitiate a healing response. So some of the early work outside of treatment of kidney stones, which we refer to as lithotripsy, was in plantar fasciitis, where they were finding that by targeting those, those, um, those heel spurs, they were actually giving patients pain relief. And then it was determined that not only was it treating the mineral deposit, but it was actually treating the, the length of the plantar fascia that was giving individuals that long-term uh, pain relief they were looking for. So there's been a number of studies, and again, you know, super nerdy thing, but if you really want strong evidence, you, you're looking for studies that are randomized, have a placebo, and are, are, are controlled studies. And, and this is actually where Shockwave has some of the strongest evidence for treatment, is in the treatment of plantar fasciitis. So the upside with shockwave is it's a non-invasive procedure. It's called extracorporeal shockwave because it, it's delivered outside of the body. You have a device that either will strike the tissue, and that's what we refer to as radial shockwave or radial pressure wave, or you'll have a device that oftentimes will create kind of a burning sensation, and that's what we refer to that as focused shockwave. The downside with shockwave is the treatment itself is painful. And, uh, you know, it, it is truly, as some of my patients say, it is no pain, no gain. If the treatment's being done correctly, it will induce pain. Studies that have been done where people would get a nerve block actually found that it was less successful for treatment. So we believe that shockwave works to actually stimulate tissue remodeling through inflammation, but it may also disrupt pain signals between our brain and our spinal cord. So, um, so you will have pain during the treatment that we'll, we'll say is typically five to seven out of 10. It does have an out-of-pocket cost. And, and similar to other treatments, not, there is no one singular treatment that's 100% effective. But I've looked at outcomes for my patients and have seen you know, upwards of 75% of individuals with good functional improvement uh, after receiving shockwave treatment. And a typical protocol should include three weekly sessions with structured rehabilitation with a follow-up at three months. Um, I see a lot of variability in how shockwave is delivered, where some people say you have a really bad case and you need like, you know, some random number of sessions. But if you really look at the literature and, and you're, you're not necessarily driven just by, by a financial component of charging for every session, I do believe that the best standard practice is to do three to four initial sessions separated by a week, do the structured rehabilitation, and then based on the studies, it's usually a three to four months where you're going to see a good response to the treatment. And that's where you might consider more shockwave, or you might consider combining it with other types of strategies, such as uh, platelet-rich plasma. Two things to double click on here. First, I do want to go back to us talking about uh, the steroid injections. When we talk about that, uh, are we talking about a cortisone shot? Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for, for having me clarify that. So we hear corticosteroid, cortisone. That's, that's essentially what we're referring to is the use of steroid, which is oftentimes mixed with a numbing medication like lidocaine. Um, and, and both of those are actually been shown to be potentially toxic to the cells uh, that right. they're exposed to. Right. Now, I know, uh, at least in my case, a concern and why we didn't go that route was not only did we want to actually fix the root cause of what was giving me this problem, but also more often than not, what will happen is that the cortisone injection dulls the pain in the area, but doesn't rid 
the issue. And so you may not be aware to your point that people might tear their planter, that you could be doing more damage than good. Now, understandably, people are like, oh, but I don't want to feel the pain. So they're hoping to find someone to give them a cortisone injection. And so I bring all of this up because it's helpful to know that although it may lessen your pain in that moment, you might be doing your dis- yourself a disservice in the long haul. I'm really glad you're bringing up that point uh, because, again, often we, we oftentimes are responding to the fact that we have pain. So I have unfortunately seen patients where I've taken care of them or they are seeking care from from other providers in addition to me where they've received a steroid injection and subsequently torn their plantar fascia. So it's it, it's not not a pleasant experience and and that in itself is going to require a prolonged time to recover from from tearing the plantar fascia as well so yeah both of us uh it, it, it's very disheartening when you when you hear that <laughs> happen and then the other thing too is that people will sometimes be given oral steroids and my concern with oral steroids is, you know, it's it's like trying to hose off a, a, a forest fire when you could just dump a bucket of water right on the flame. So if someone's going to get a steroid injection, I would much prefer that it be targeted very locally as opposed to taking oral steroids, which we know will will actually have more profound effects on on the endocrine system, can cause people to have trouble with sleeping, but can also have effects long term on on bone health or even a rare condition called avascular necrosis, which can cause a long-term damage to, to joints and bones. So um, I think a big takeaway for, for all the listeners is to understand that steroid is commonly used, um, but it may not be the best long-term solution for someone's health. Definitely. And then the last thing that I wanted to mention here, uh, the second point to double click on, I know we talked about shockwave therapy, but something we haven't talked about just yet is light therapy. That is a route that I went down. I did the LED red light therapy, uh, essentially an application of red and near infrared light goes to your injured area, i.e. the plantar fascia. And in my case, I did, I believe, three treatments um, aiming to accelerate that tissue healing and reduce the inflammation and pain. For me, that worked. It might not work for everyone. What do you say about the light therapy? Yeah, so I'm glad you're bringing up light therapy because this is this is an area where we're actually doing some active research. Um, and the theory on how the this light therapy may work is that oftentimes what we're using is something close to a near infrared. So it'll be it'll be more of like a red based laser. Um, it requires a lot of a lot of safety precautions because a true laser can actually cause permanent uh, vision damage, uh, blindness. So that treatment, the theory is that the light therapy might actually increase metabolic activity. And unlike shockwave and some of these other interventions, it's largely a painless experience. Um, oftentimes, it just feels like a deep heat is being applied to the tissue. There have, there have been some limited studies showing that light therapy may help with plantar fasciitis. We're right now studying combining light therapy with shockwave in the treatment of Achilles uh, tendinopathy. So, and and in in my system, Mass General Brigham, there's actually a whole center for what's referred to as photomedicine or phototherapy. So, I think there is something there. There is definitely something to light therapy, um, and whether it's done as a singular treatment or in combination with other treatments, that can provide some help. I think for those listening, it's just understanding that things like uh, phototherapy, uh, shockwave, platelet-rich plasma, they oftentimes will have an out-of-pocket cost. So it's it's trying to understand what's going to be the best individualized treatment, and for some, that's going to be informed by understanding, you know, evidence-based medicine, which describes groups of patients, not necessarily an individual. Uh, but for others, it's it's going to be about choice and understanding how to, how things should be done safely. Yeah, and you know that's definitely a frustration point for so many, right? You pay so much for insurance; it doesn't get you what you need. You're trying to make the right decisions for your body, and then, understandably so, that is why more often than not, some people may go down a path that might not ultimately be in their best interest. So again, this goes back to that concept we were talking about before 
patience, 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 which when you've got regular pain, it's not exactly easy. Oh, I, I a hundred percent agree. And, and again, that's, that's also why it's important to have, you know, a physician or a medical provider that, that you trust and that you feel is, is really listening to, to you and understanding how this injury is affecting your overall health. Because as, as you were mentioning earlier, these, these injuries, you know, pain can really affect a number of things. Uh, it can affect someone's physical health, but it also affects their mental health and their quality of life. So that's why I think it's a really important injury to, to think about targeting and, and for those that have dealt with this injury that are listening in, not to give up hope that there, that there can't be a solution. Now, there are two things I want to touch on before I let you go. The first thing is getting back to regular activity. We're talking about maybe seeing a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. The symptoms are lessening a little bit. Maybe there's a little bit of lingering pain, but it's not like it was before. Do you have any golden rules of thumb when it comes to getting back into activity, uh, where you should be at if you're on a pain scale? What should we expect? I'm really glad you asked. There's actually been some work, and again, this is extrapolated from the treatment of overuse injury to tendon, where we there's a, a pain scale based on zero to 10 and three zones of pain. So I really like this, this analogy of a green zone, a yellow zone, and a red zone. So this is the way that I'll handle the, the management of plantar fasciitis in runners. And again, this is outside of something like platelet-rich plasma, where there may be a specific time frame before starting back into activity. But for individuals after shockwave treatment, we oftentimes will talk about the green zone being any activity you can do with zero to two out of 10 pain is, is desirable. Acceptable is the yellow zone. So that's any activity that causes pain between two to five out of 10. And that's both during as well as after the activity. We call that the yellow zone. So yellow means it's okay to have that amount of pain, but we need to be cautious. And we need to make sure that that pain comes back down to baseline before we return to doing that activity. Any activity that exceeds five out of 10, we refer to as a red zone, which really means stop. We, if, we're, if we're pushing our body into pain that exceeds five out of 10, the concern is this tissue is getting overloaded and that's just gonna cause more damage that the body needs time to repair. So it, it's just gonna keep the body in this chronically irritated state where the body will not ultimately heal and get that desirable long-term goal of pain relief. Again, I know when I was in the prime of my plantar fasciitis diagnosis uh, and really working back to slowly up my mileage as I was training for a marathon, the goal was always to do it, A, only adding 10% each week, so no more than an additional of 10% total mileage week over week, and then to uh, increase the volume without changing or increasing the pain, right? So as long as we were in, as you described, that yellow zone or below, it was a safe place to be. So I think that breakdown is actually truly, truly helpful and a really great way to visualize what someone may be going through. One other piece of that that I think is important is to understand how long does it take for soft tissue to heal? So Oftentimes, you know, when I was growing up, when you were growing up, we were told everything was was itis, right? It's inflammatory, a couple weeks, you should be able to knock it out. But the way we're understanding soft tissue healing is we're actually, there's actually belief that it may take six to 12 months for the body to fully repair a soft tissue injury. So as we talked about before, and I, I feel is almost insulting to my patients to tell them they need to be patient. There is something to be said for recognizing how long it takes for the body to fully repair a soft tissue uh, area of injury. That can take six months or longer. So if someone is still having pain, but they're following those guidelines of the green, yellow, red zone, if, if they stay the course, my hope is they'll get to a point in which they're not having pain. Now, before I let you go, I do want to touch on what could be some advice for home remedies when it comes to dealing with plantar fasciitis. Obviously, getting in to see an expert is 
highly important for everyone to get back to a quality of life that feels much more enjoyable. But when it comes to ice, I know you touched about anti-inflammatories. What else should someone know who's dealing with this on their own at home? Yeah, so I think icing is fine. Uh, stretching is a little controversial. You know, while I described a night splint as a way to keep keep your feet from from being in a, a passive, you know, slack state uh, where where you're going to have a lot of pain when you take steps. Um, stretching itself, in some cases, will cause the tissue to be chronically irritated. So I'm not as big of a proponent for stretching as I used to be. Once someone explained the you know, the idea that that tissue might have some fraying. And the analogy I use now is if you pull on a rope that's already frayed, it's not necessarily going to make the rope whole again. It's probably going to cause more damage. There are exercises, the short foot exercises or toe spread exercises, um, which sometimes people will use toe spacers on top of it. Using wider toe box shoes uh, can also be helpful because if there's a component of, of having a bunion or hallux valgus, having a little bit more space in the shoe will allow for the toes to not be as constrained and then helps to, and then doing that in combination with strengthening the feet might actually help to restore something we're referring to as the foot core. Uh, so the, the muscles to make up the foot and ankle complex. You know, it's funny. We talk about leg day and upper body day and working on our core, but we rarely ever think about the importance of strengthening our foot, this thing that we rely on so much day in and day out. So much really, really great advice in here. Truly a, a really in-depth explainer on plantar fasciitis. So I appreciate you, Dr. 1040, for taking the time to go through this with me. Anything else that you want to uh, offer the hurdlers before I let you go today? No, I, I think this is this has uh, been a been a great opportunity to share what I know on the on the plantar fascia and uh, and again I, I hope for those listening who suffer with this injury you know seeing myself seeing one of my colleagues at Mass General Brigham or you know seeing a provider that that has an expertise in this if if you're you're not in the Boston area and just remaining hopeful that there can be a strategy to to treat this this injury and to get back to doing the things you enjoy and love. We love that. Well, for those that are not in the area or they may be but want to follow along with you, how do they keep up with you? Is there a way to hang out with you on social media? Sure. So on on X, uh, Adam ten forty uh, MD is my uh, is my X handle, and feel free to reach out. I, I just want to help my my fellow human being. I love that. I'm over at Emily Abadi and at Hurdle Podcast. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time. 